Let's all turn to the Word of God together. We're reading today from the book of Lamentations. We'll give you a little time to turn up the place. You can find Isaiah, that master among the prophets, Isaiah, then Jeremiah, and after Jeremiah, Lamentations. Lovely to see you here. We give you a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And uh, this past week, I've been ministering in Banbridge, and some of you have been able to come up and see us and visit with us during those services. And others were hard-pressed for time. But is that a strange thing? It isn't. But thank you for coming, and others of you prayed. And I appreciate that more than words can say. It was lovely to see folks come up from Lisburn. And I think it was an encouragement to the friends in Banbridge as well. And during that time we were ministering, we concentrated on Matthew 24, verses 1 to 31. So thank you for coming, and those of you who managed, and, and those of you also who took time to pray. I do believe God's people there were encouraged this past week. Now we come to this third chapter, five chapters in Lamentations, uh, answering, I think, to the, the book divisions of the Pentateuch. This is chapter three. It may be important to count the number of verses, uh, 66 verses in this third chapter of Lamentations. Elsewhere in Lamentations, and this is no coincidence, every other chapter has 22, 22 verses. As I say, that's no coincidence, because in this case, with this book in the Bible, the Holy Spirit himself has predetermined the number of chapters. And it is clear from the number of verses each time, because 66 is 22 multiplied by 3. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so when we come to Lamentations, it's a book that re-echoes all of the Old Testament scriptures. And what I would like you to do, not just now, but when you get home today, is to take your pen or a marker of some kind, and every time you get to a third verse as we go on in sequence down chapter 3, you can draw a line across because that'll be one letter at a time. You see how methodically everything is laid out? One letter at a time, but... Three verses to every letter. So everybody can see where the first letter of the alphabet runs. It just means that the verse begins with a word uh, whose initial is the letter that is indicated. So Aleph is the first one. That means verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 has a word there initially which carries the letter Aleph as part and parcel of its substance. Now we're going to read from verse 1. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. 
He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. New letter. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I, I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hue and stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark. For the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forget prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Now the light's beginning to shine in. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Praise the Lord for that. May the Lord bless and honor the reading as well as the preaching of his holy word this day. Amen. Turn with me then, please, to Lamentations chapter 3. Open your Bible up for us to that chapter. 
We're going to um, study the latter part of what Dr. Douglas read, uh, really from verse 21 down to verse 24. But open your Bible up there, and with it open at that place, let's pray briefly and ask the Lord for His help as we come to study His Word. Our Father, we give thanks already for the theme of our praise, that it is the Almighty and all-powerful God, the merciful and compassionate God, and the rock Jesus Christ on whom we stand. And Lord, we ask that all that we've already been singing about will feed in now to what we study from the Word of God. May all, it all dovetail together to bring us through to a particular theme, a particular person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you will speak to us now through the words of truth. It is a quick word. It is a powerful word. It is a sharp word. May we experience all of its features today as they're described in that Scripture. And so, be with us, we ask. Give help to preacher and hearer alike. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes being a parent leaves you in embarrassing situations you'd really rather not find yourself in. I had one of those recently when we took the kids to a busy play park on a Saturday afternoon. George is our second child, and in a way, George is a little bit of a paradox because he's very good at climbing, and he really enjoys climbing very, very much, but he's also absolutely terrified of heights. And this paradox is what forms the basis of the predicament that I found myself in on that particular Saturday afternoon, because he managed to reach the top of this climbing net that ran up the inside of a 30-foot tower. And he's able to do that because his eyes are upwards. He's just looking at the next step, focusing on where he needs to go next. The problem that we found was that when he reached the top of that tower, there was no slide or perhaps I think it was that the slide was blocked up, it was damaged somehow, and so for George, the only way to come back down was to reverse all of his steps along this climbing rope. This is much more of a problem for somebody like George, because it means he'll be fully aware of how high up he is from the ground, and it proved to be just so a real problem for George, as to the amusement of the dozens of other parents in the park that day, George and I started a shouting negotiation from 30 feet apart as I tried to convince him to come back down. George was not prepared to accept my terms in the negotiation, and he had a counter-proposal of his own. His proposal was that I climb up the inside of that tower myself and carry him back down. We had a standoff. It lasted for only 15 minutes because I realized that if I wanted to see my son again, I would have to climb up the inside of that tower and bring him back down. So I accepted his terms. And as I hauled my six-foot-four frame up the inside of that tower, designed for children under the age of ten, all the while watched by many passively embarrassed parents wondering what on earth was going on, I had to face the very real possibility that I was going to get stuck. I very nearly did on numerous occasions, which would leave George and I spending the night up there together as we waited for the fire brigade to come and get us back down. And this is what I mean by parenting leaving you in embarrassing situations. Now, how does any of that relate to Lamentations chapter 3? Well, as Jeremiah writes these words in Lamentations, he's revealing that, just like every single one of us, 
there are times when he's like a scared child in a climbing frame. And let me show you what I mean when we read verse 18. Read that verse with me. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Jeremiah is feeling hopeless and afraid. He's realized that he's without strength. He has no expectation of anything good at this point. Now, what is it that makes him talk that way? Why is he saying those kinds of words? What makes him so hopeless? We'll just keep reading into verse 19. Remembering mine affliction and my misery. Looking at the circumstances of life, which as you can tell having read the opening 18 verses of the chapter, for him at this time, they bring only pain and sorrow through the vivid description given to us in those verses. There is no hope as Jeremiah looks at his situation. Just like little George looking at the ground 30 feet below him, when Jeremiah focused on the wrong thing, it only brought him to fear and hopelessness. And he's revealing a very important truth, that if our sense of hope, if our sense of joy and our sense of strength is drawn only from the things that happen to us in this life, it won't be long before we're left saying the same thing. My hope is perished from the Lord. Because our times can be good. You might be in that kind of situation today, feeling good, surrounded by good things, and you're excited about the future. But if you know anything, you know that our circumstances, our feelings, and our expectations make for very fragile foundations, because it's not long before those things turn to become incredibly bitter. The circumstances which once made us feel good can very soon leave us feeling very bitter. They become a source of pain rather than hope. But there is real hope. In this chapter and in life, there is real hope. When we look at where the prophet's mind is taken, next of all, we start to see it. Look at verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Just a moment ago, he had none. He said in verse 18 that his hope was perished from the Lord. Just a few verses later, he says, therefore have I hope. What's happening? He's recalling something different to his mind not the circumstances of life, not the trouble in which he finds himself, but he's recalling now to his mind the character of his God. That brings us into the following verses, the one who can give him hope in this darkness. Dr. Douglas pointed out that these come in sets of three. Well, Jeremiah leads us into a set of three from verse 22 to 24, where he explains the character of his God the source of this hope that he has now found. What he's recalling to his mind is found in those three verses. The sum of it in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. It's specific. Real hope, it's not just theoretical. It's not just a fluffy internal feeling. It's not based on our circumstances either. Real hope is found in a person. He says, I will hope in him. When Jeremiah recalls that person to his mind, he has hope rather than fear. So, the question for us this morning is this, what exactly did Jeremiah, and what should we today recall to our minds about God that will bring to us real hope. 
That's precisely, as I've said already, what Jeremiah goes on to give us in verses 22, 23, and 24, where he explains exactly what it is that he's recalling to his mind. And as he does that, he shows all of us today the theme, where to find real hope. Where to find real hope. I said it's found in the character of God. And the first feature of that God and the feature of His character is described for us in verse 21, where we see His mercy. His mercy. Sorry, verse 22, I should say. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. That mention of the word mercy, I imagine for many of you, will make you to think about the idea of being spared something or something bad being withheld, which is certainly the main sense of the word mercy, although in Scripture the word is considerably broader than that and found in many different contexts. But in this context, that is the right understanding of the word mercy, because you can see it's the right word to use because the consequence of this mercy that Jeremiah describes in verse 22 is that we are not consumed. That being consumed is the thing that's being withheld. We're spared that consuming. Now, the point Jeremiah is making here is that every time he remembers that he hasn't been given from God what he really deserves, he sees the mercy of the Lord, and that gives him real hope. That's not a bad place for us to start today as we try to recall to our minds something that will give us hope in our souls. I want you to turn with me, please, in the New Testament to Titus chapter 3, keeping your place, of course, in Lamentations. We'll come back again, but Titus 3 at this point, and we're going to look at a few verses from this chapter as we think about the mercy of God and why that mercy gives us a great sense of hope. Titus 3 and verse 3. There we read, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What an awful description. What kind of people are these being described in this verse? And, and what, what realistically should happen to people who behave in that kind of way? The people being described in Titus 3 and 3 are people just like you and me, people who deserve to be consumed by the holy wrath of God. This is the kind of thing that Jeremiah is describing, or at least has in his mind as he writes in Lamentations 3, when he thinks about the consuming wrath of God which he deserves. It's for behavior like this in Titus 3 and 3. But remember, what is deserved is withheld because God is merciful. We see that in verse 4 of Titus 3. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. We are saved by His mercy. You see, at the start of verse 5, it's not by our works of righteousness. It's not that we have earned this mercy, because if we'd earned it, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. Mercy, by its very nature, is undeserved. 
We've been saved from the sin which would consume all of our joy and peace in this life. We've been saved from the consuming fire which that sin deserves in the next life. We've been saved from the blindness that would make it impossible for us to see hope in the midst of difficulty. All because of the mercy of God. His not giving us what we deserve. We're not finished in Titus 3, because the key is verse 6. This kindness, this love, and this mercy is something which He has shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's crucial that we apply verse 6 to everything we read in the preceding verses. There is no mercy apart from Jesus Christ. There is no being saved from sin without a Savior. It's crucial you understand that if you're going to understand how the mercy of God is a source of real hope. Let me explain what I mean. It's not the case that God shows mercy and withholds His wrath on a whim, that He just arbitrarily decided to do that without any basis, like some kind of spontaneous decision. If that was the case, then it would give you and I very little hope. That mercy would be a fragile thing. What's to stop that God who just flippantly decided to show mercy from just changing His mind again and taking that mercy away? That's not the kind of mercy that God shows to His people. If He can withhold judgment just because He feels like it, then He could at any moment stop withholding it. There's no hope in a mercy of that kind. But there is hope. Because God shows mercy on the basis of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. To put it in the language of Lamentations 3, we are not consumed because Jesus Christ was consumed for us. God will therefore always be merciful to His people. It's something we can rest on. We can place our hope in this mercy because Jesus Christ has fully secured it for us. God will not punish believers because Jesus Christ has already been punished for them. That's real, lasting hope. Today and every day, we can hope in the mercy of God because He's demonstrated it. He's shown it to us abundantly through and on the basis of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Turn back with me then to Lamentations 3. Our hope in the circumstances of life, it's not just based on the mercy of God, which saves us from being consumed, but something else in this chapter, it's also based on His compassion. His compassion Let's read the second part of verse 22 and the first part of 23. It says, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. The word for compassion used many times in the Old Testament is literally the word for bios, which might not make sense on the face of it, but that is the ancient Eastern equivalent of the heart the seat of affection. We use the word in that way today, the heart. The point being that compassion, as as used here, describes deeply moving affection, the Lord's heart for His people. It's never failing, we see in verse 22. 
So let me really drive the point home. We've seen the mercy, now we see the compassion. The two come together. We deserve to be consumed, but because of Christ, God shows mercy and withholds it. But that's not all. It goes far further than that, because not only does He spare us from wrath, but instead He showers us with love, a love which we see here will never fail and never change. Our feelings change all the time, don't they? Our circumstances change. Our strength of faith, well, that goes up and down all the time. His compassions fail not. The Lord's love for His people cannot change, because just like His mercy, the expression of His love is shown to us through and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday and today and forever, and so if the compassion of God is shown to us through that person, it can't change. It cannot fail. The love of God the compassion of the Lord is unchanging and unfailing. We see that in verse 22, but verse 23 brings out a slightly different theme when it says, they are new every morning. The compassion of God to His people is unrelenting. It doesn't stop. It's given to you, if you're here and a believer today, it's given to you fresh every morning. The word is used here in the plural, compassions. It's something which is given again and again and again, not just once. That's the sense. You're not, as some people maybe mistakenly think, you're not given on the day that you come to Christ and you get saved, you're not given this pot of grace that God gives to you, and, and you've got to ration that out very carefully for the rest of your life. That's not how it works. It's also not the case that you're patiently waiting for the day that Christ returns, and then you'll receive the grace of God, and now you just have to wait. The reality is that you have it right now, and you get more of it every single day. I want you to see a very vivid illustration of that point in Exodus chapter 16. If you turn back with me to that chapter, Exodus 16. Exodus 16, and we're going to read a portion from verse 17. Here, seeing an illustration of the compassion of God that He shows to His people new every morning. Exodus 16, verse 17. Here, just for the sake of context, we're reading of the children of Israel in the wilderness and the manner in which God gave to them manna, bread, that they could eat bread from heaven. So, Exodus 16 and verse 17. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, some less. And when they did meet it with, with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. Let me just pause there and say, do you notice what's happening? They get exactly what they need. It's enough. It's perfect not too much, not too little. Verse 19, and Moses said, let no man leave of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was wroth with them. And they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted." 
What's the point here being brought across by the fact that they were instructed just to gather in the morning in whatever they needed for that day, not to hoard up, not to gather as much as they could and, and put it in the freezer and hope to defrost it the next day. What's the point of that? What are we to understand? Well, the children of Israel, they're being provided with this manna, and they're going to go and gather a supply every morning, and they'll be certain that they will have enough for whatever comes that particular day. When we read passages like this, children of Israel, particularly their experience in the wilderness, it's a representation of the Christian life. The manna that they ate in that wilderness, it's a representation of the grace that God gives to His people as they continue on that journey in life. So, the point for us to grasp in the light of Exodus 16 is that God lovingly gives new grace to His people every morning, and what He gives is enough for whatever that day holds. You don't know what's coming, but He does. You can't hoard it up. You can't come to the good times and say, well, I'm going to get enough grace from God today, enough good feeling from God today, and then I'll, I'll bring it out in an emergency when I need it. You get what you need every morning. That should impact the way that we pray. We ought to pray every day for the grace that we need that day, not just as and when we have an emergency. As we pray for ourselves, so we pray for others. We must pray that He will demonstrate His unfailing compassion for us through new grace every morning, which is always enough. His compassion. We have real hope because of the Lord's mercy, because of His compassion, but now back in Lamentations 3, verse 23, also because of His faithfulness. His faithfulness, through, uh, four simple words, great is thy faithfulness. The word is used here is His truthfulness, His dependability, the fact that He is loyal, someone who ha can be relied upon, essentially, saying here that the Lord is someone who, when He says He will do something, He will do it. He is the promise-keeping God. Now, you know what it's like to be around someone who's the opposite of that. We all have at least one friend or one family member in my case, my sister, sorry, but that person who's always late for everything, never on time. And I've noticed as I've spent entire, my entire life really around someone like that, that there's a real pattern of behavior in people like that. They always fit a particular mold. They're consistently late and disorganized, but they're also consistently ridiculously optimistic and it's a terrible combination. In fact, it only perpetuates the problem because they always think, oh, well, that journey takes 15 minutes, but I can do it in five. I still have to get dressed and have a shower, but I can do it in 30 seconds. Hopelessly optimistic, and that's why they're always late. Now, when you are spend enough time around someone like that, and they let you down enough times, it starts to shape your expectation of that person. Eventually, your opinion of them, or at least your expectation that they'll be on time, gets lower and lower and lower. And so people say, oh, well, you know, they said they would be here at nine, and you say, well, I've heard that one before. Wait till ten. And so our expectation for the future 
is based on our experience of the past. And so if a person has shown themselves to be dependable, then we can expect them to continue to be dependable in the future. If it's the opposite, then we can expect them to be the opposite in the future. You understand what I'm saying? So God, the God of the Bible, has a long-standing habit of being faithful to His promises. More than a habit, He has an unbroken record. He's never broken even one of them, and that should give us hope for the future not just about the past, but hope for the future. He is the God who promised to deliver His people out of bondage, and He did. He's the God who promised to bring them into their promised land, and He did. He's the God who promised to send a Redeemer for the forgiveness of sins, and He did. What does that mean? It means that when He promises to strengthen your heart, He will. When He promises that His grace is sufficient for you, it is when He promises that He will not leave you comfortless, He won't. Great is His faithfulness. That should draw out a certain response from us. The fact that He's faithful to His people, it emphasizes that He is worthy of our faith in Him. I want you to go with me to Hebrews and see that point. Hebrews chapter 10, please just one verse, 23, and it brings out this very important point, that God is faithful to His people, and that on that basis, we ought to place our entire faith in Him. Hebrews 10, 23, there we read, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? Look at the piece in brackets for He is faithful that promised. Why should we hold tight to the gospel? Why should we not waver from the eternal hope that it brings? Because the one who's promised us in the gospel everlasting life, peace with God, an eternal inheritance, and comfort in our sorrow, it says He is faithful to all of His promises. He is faithful that promised. There is real hope because of God's faithfulness. But finally this morning, in Lamentations 3, now verse 24, we see the fourth of the features of the character of God that give Jeremiah and hopefully give us hope today. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord, essentially this means, is my inheritance. That's another way of rendering the word. He is all that I have. And therefore, that gives me hope. I want you to think about the context. Jeremiah has, as far as human things go, lost pretty much everything as he writes these words. He has really nothing of his own. He has absolutely no prospect of a rich inheritance in the future, given that at this time his people have been taken away captive. He has no portion, no inheritance in the material sense of things, but I don't need that, he says, because the Lord is my portion. I have nothing, but at the same time I have everything, because the Lord is sufficient. It's the huge contrast in this chapter that really brings it out so clearly. The fact that there is no human hope for the prophet, 
He's made that absolutely clear in the chapter. There's no material supply for him whatsoever. That gives him greater clarity and certainty in his soul that all he needs is in the Lord. The Bible gives us examples of that again and again and again. Like Joseph in his imprisonment, like Job in his trials, like Paul in his pain, it seems like it's only when everything else is gone that we finally realize He is everything. The Lord is my portion. Very, very easy to say that. So hard to live it. I think there's a reason that this is the last of the reasons listed by Jeremiah for his hope in God. If we remember the things that we've seen already, that if we recall to our minds that the Lord is merciful, that the Lord is compassionate, that the Lord is faithful, then grasping those things will help us to grasp in conclusion that He is sufficient. When we live that out, we walk in the footsteps of many who have gone before us in the church of Jesus Christ, many who through the centuries have lived in hardship who have lost much, who have had no earthly portion, and yet confidently held on to the truth that the Lord alone is our portion. So important was this fact to our predecessors, that the Lord is sufficient. They dealt with this theme in the opening question of their confession, which we call the Heidelberg Catechism written almost 500 years ago, it begins by asking this question right at the top, what is your only comfort in life and death? That's how it starts. Now, the answer to that in the catechism is long. I won't read it today, but I'll give you a summary of the answer, which you find in a modern hymn which many of you will recognize. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. He is our only hope, our only comfort, our only confidence. The Lord is my portion. He is sufficient. We need the help of the Holy Spirit with this today. When Jeremiah said in the chapter that he was recalling these things to his mind, I think it's very easy to misunderstand what he's saying. The word for mind that's used there is actually the common Hebrew word for heart, more commonly translated that way. And understanding that brings out a very important point to us today as we finish. It's possible to have all of those things in your mind, the character of God, the features of His nature. Those things will not bring you any comfort on their own if they stay only in your mind. Mental understanding is different from real hope in the heart and soul. Yet we can understand in our minds all these truths about God, but we must now pray for the Holy Spirit to make the things that we understand become the things that we trust. There's a great difference in those two things. May He turn our knowledge into faith today so that we might find real hope in Him.